here's the thing. The West tries to build stability. And when they try to build stability, they build it out of a homogeneous materials. In other words, let's get everything stable. Let's get everything the same. Let's make sure that it doesn't change. And this goes from building structures to constitutions to doctrine, denomination, no loyalty, church covenants, all of these things that we try to say, like, if we're going to be who we are, this is who we are. And it never changes. Well, that is exactly fighting against the laws of nature. The church has built according to this Western model. And, you know, no wonder every few generations, everybody starts leaving, you know, (laughs) because life is not that way. And this was never the intention of Jesus. Jesus' idea was not to build some religion and some structure that, you know, had these rules. Let's love, let's love our creator. And how do we do that? We love each other. Welcome to the Earth Keepers Podcast. This podcast is for people who seek new and better ways to love and care for the Earth. It's a podcast for anyone who is deeply concerned about the harm being done to the environment on a local and global level. It's a podcast that builds community and connection between people of like heart and mind, people who believe that Earth care should be integrated into every aspect of life, and for many in the Earth Keepers community, that includes our spiritual lives. In this episode, I'll be talking to Dr. Randy Woodley, who, with his wife Edith, leads Elohe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice, where their work touches the lives of Native people and non-Native people alike. We'll be talking about their work and about Randy's recent book, Indigenous Theology and the Western Worldview, a decolonized approach to Christian doctrine. As you heard in the clip at the start of this episode, Randy challenges mainstream Western churches to embrace and be changed by diverse perspectives. Indigenous theology in particular challenges the church to redefine the role of humankind as co-sustainers, not masters of creation. Welcome, friends, to the Earth Keepers podcast. Randy, welcome to the podcast. You have the honor of being the first person to have been on the Earth Keepers podcast three times now. So, yeah, this is my third you. time. I'm really that's right. I'm feeling very honored, or else you guys just, you know, have <laughs> run out of people over and over and over again. No, so. no. See, the problem is you keep writing good books, all books that we recommend to listeners. So we really don't have a choice. So I'm sure you're going to be back again too. <laughs> So yeah, one of the reasons we asked you to come on is to talk about one of the newest books. But since I'm recommending this as another kind of must-read for Earth Keepers, I thought it would be good for listeners to be persuaded by your own words about the book. Also, though, you and Edith have got something inspiring going for expanding your programs at Eloe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice. So maybe we can start with that for listeners who aren't familiar with Eloe. It would be great to hear the story of the place and of your work there, what you do day to day. So, you know, in some ways, this is a long story, so I'll try not to make it very long. But when we started Alahay in Kentucky, which was back in 2004, that was sort of like we built for a couple of years and then our schools were so successful, we had already turned our garage into a 
bunkhouse and then a dormer over into another bunkhouse. But we needed to build more in order to have place to meet and things. And so we ran into trouble with the zoning planning and really with our neighbors when we went to build. And that's where the racism started. And that's where eventually we had to give up our 50 acre farm and all that. But it was really over trying to build, right? So that we could have a year round successful school. And then in the last property with a second rendition of Ayla Hay was at that small farm in Newburgh, Oregon. And we didn't have any place that we could do that. And so that was part of the problem is that, you know, having people there went against some of the zoning and we couldn't build another building. And so that sort of sunk us there as well. And then we finally have gotten a great place with great zoning and we're going to build a building finally. So we've started the process. We're in the middle of applications and we've got the building permit. We've got a builder. We've looked at lots of different design and figured out the simplest and most useful and least expensive design. And so now we're trying to raise money to build the agricultural and learning center, as it's being called, because we'll also use it when we're not having schools. We'll be using it for agricultural processing and different things like that. So. So that's where we're at now. We do have a little campground, but, you know, the weather, especially with climate change, you know, it's getting too hot in the summer to just meet out in the open. It's, of course, in the Northwest, it's too wet in the wintertime to plan anything to meet. And so if we're going to be doing what we do best, which seems to be hosting and teaching people and having, you know, a learning experience together, then we need some kind of a place that we can get out of the weather and meet in. And so we're finally there. What is the hope that Ailahay represents for Indigenous people in particular? So just like everybody else, our Indigenous people are being colonized and losing our indigeneity. And our function, I guess, for many is we just flip the switch and they go, oh yeah, that's right. It doesn't take a lot, you know. And they maybe take place in one ceremony or one talk or whatever, and the the light goes on and they sort of start coming back into reality. And then the other one is because of boarding schools and because of the stolen generation where Native kids were taken and adopted out to non-Native families at a really high percent. And, you know, all these kinds of things. We have a lot of Native people who are Native but have lost their – not lost their identity and they, they never had it. They were raised by white folks or whatever, and they often come to us and they're saying, in a sense, how do I connect with my nativeness, you know? And so we don't try to give them a prescription, but just invite them into what we do. And that seems to, again, flip that switch. And what about non-Indigenous folks seeking to, using your term, decolonize their faith? Where's the hope for them in Eloy? Yeah. We have so many people, and all these people I'm talking about, we make friends with folks, right? Our motto is short-term mentoring, lifelong relationships. And so there are people who we love and are friends with all over the world, all over the United States and Canada, and you know, all over. And so part of what becomes real is the relationship. And when you have the relationship, things can flow through. It's fluid, Right. And so the teaching can continue or the suggestions. And then I love it when people come back and tell me I did this and I don't know what they're talking about. And I want to ask them and find out more, you know. And so that happens so often with so many people. 
it gives me a lot of hope of how things are changing. You know, of course, they're not changing enough and they're not changing fast enough, but they are changing. And I'm just really happy that there's there's all kinds of people who have a modified Western worldview who are working on a more indigenous worldview now, who we know. And, you know, if we can help nurse that along the way, we're happy to do it. So maybe tell me a bit about what you're dreaming of in terms of the things that are going to be happening at the Agricultural and Learning Center. Yeah. So on the learning side, the agricultural might not be too exciting to most people. I don't know. But we do have a seed company, right, that helps support the farm. And we need a lot more room than we have right now. We're not looking at having hundreds and hundreds of people here. So what we're looking at was we'd like to do at least eight weekends a year, what we call extended weekend learning cohorts. They come in Thursday evening and then leave Sunday afternoon. And that's what we were doing before. And it provides a great experience, a great learning time. And and so we'll hopefully have eight of those a year. And then we will have some camps with different kinds of people at different times. And then we will try to have three summits a year. And those summits, when we say summit, we're probably talking 60 to 75 people. So that might be the largest crowds that ever gather here. And mostly that's because of parking. But the benches will basically, we're looking at holding about 60, 70 people. And those kinds of summits will go for probably two days or something like that. Maybe three days and two nights, something. So, yeah. And what we do is the same thing we've always done is our sort of mission is to transform people from a Western worldview to a more indigenous worldview with more indigenous values that will sustain our futures. And part of that process is decolonizing and indigenizing. And this is what we've been on ever since we started our original Elahe schools is our theme has been decolonize and indigenize. So, and that's for all of us, you know, yeah. nobody's excluded. Randy, talk to us about what decolonizing means. Yeah. So I'm sure there's lots of definitions, you know, textbook definitions, but I'm just going to sort of off what it means to me. It means to begin to peel away the lies of empire that I've been taught that are lies both about myself and lies about other people and lies, uh, the myths that we carry on in our road signs and historic markers and in our books and all these kinds of things. There's a lot of those are colonial lies and mythologies. And so to decolonize means that I have to begin to strip the layers away of those lies. And one leads to the other. You know, as soon as we start peeling the onion, there's more layers. And that's a long time process. But I think it also begs the question, then what is to indigenize? Because if you just decolonize, then what are you left with? So you have to begin to say, well, then what is true about me and what is true about other people and what are those values and what do I need to live by? And so those are the kinds of things that you fill yourself with along the way. And it's not sort of like you do all this and then you do this. It's sort of like life goes around in circles and we just keep going from one to the other. So in your recent newsletter, you wrote, I'm inviting our friends and supporters of Elohe to imagine the future of Elohe with Edith and I an indigenous center and farm where we can all decolonize and indigenize, where equity and equality are taught and peacemaking and harmony are embodied, a place where people gather and build community around indigenous thought and ways of being. So when I first read that, 
It was really a good reminder for me that your work focuses not just on cultural healing and education for Indigenous folks, but also welcomes people who are looking to have their faith set free from the confines of maybe too narrow Western worldview. We figured out a long time ago that we all have to heal together. Mm-hmm. So that's, you know, we welcome anybody. There will be times when we have just events for Indigenous people because there are times when we need to gather and talk among ourselves. But yeah, basically our schools are going to be open for everyone. Well, I think the reason that your writings are powerful for people is because of this generous inclusivity that characterizes your writing as well. And you've helped a lot of people to discover more Indigenous faith practices. I know that for me, your book, Shalom and the Community of Creation, was the beginning of that process. And more recently, I've been influenced by your book of daily contemplations called Becoming Rooted. We've recommended both of these books on the podcast, and now we have another to recommend called Indigenous Theology and the Western Worldview. Thanks. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, let me ask you, what was your intention for the book and why this book at this time? So this book was actually based on a series of lectures I was invited to in uh, Nova Scotia. So there's some hoity-toity lecture series called the Hayward Lectures that I didn't know was hoity-toity until after I got invited and somebody says, you got invited to the Hayward Lectures? I'm like, yeah. So I guess, you know, like N.T. Wright and James Dunn and, you know, a lot of other people. And I was like, well, why on earth are they inviting me to this? (laughs) But, uh, you know, who knows? And so I did the lectures and enjoyed it. And then Baker Academic actually held the rights to turn that into a book. And so they contacted me afterwards and said, we'd like to turn this into a book. And I'm like, okay, let's do that. And so they just sort of had me, you know, shape it up a little bit. So it was in book form. And they were asking about indigenous theology. I mean, that was the bottom line. But, you know, with indigenous people, it doesn't start with theology, or I should say theology doesn't start with thought. It starts with the land. And so I had to talk about, in that first chapter in particular, about how our people have lived with the land, right? And also convince the people who are largely non-Native that Native Americans are human beings. And if I can't convince them that we're human beings, then it doesn't matter what I'm saying. I'm just a novelty. You know, I'm another romance story in the movies that they saw or the series or a book that they read. And so we have to convince people that Native Americans are human beings because, you know, the American culture has learned that they're not, you know, natives aren't human. And so, so one of the ways that I do that is not just in sharing our own stories, which is how we begin with that interview that shares a little bit of who I am as a person but by talking about the kinds of things that Native people have done on this land and how we've lived with the land for, you know, they used to say 13,000 years, and now we're saying 28,000 years, and now there's a whole bunch of scientists who are saying 130,000 years. So however long, it's been a long time, and you learn from the land, you learn from your relationship with Creator and each other, and I think together that creates these values that people have learned to live with and what has got them into a successful future. The West doesn't have the same values. And so that was really the motivation here was to, one, get them to understand us as human beings, two, to understand the difference of why we have different values and trying to help the West understand like where this comes from. This isn't just because 
people this year decided like these are the values they're going to have. This has been going on for over 3,000 years, right? What made up the Western values? And then maybe a better way to live based on the indigenous values. Yeah. Would you say, though, that right now we're in a season where there is more openness to this, that people are actually seeking an alternative way to see things? Absolutely. Really, there's a lot of things causing this for church people. You know, the churches are emptying, and so they're in a crisis. For people who are watching what's going on with their weather, climate change, and people are starting to worry and say, you know, how do we live differently? And you know, over the last three months, I've been receiving at least weekly an email or a message or a phone call from millennials or Gen Zs who are thanking me for, you know, what I'm saying and doing and how I've worked with them or reached them. And, and it's surprising to me, you know, but I have a lot of hope for those generations that they are smart enough to see we've got to change. And so there's a lot of things causing us to change, right? And so I'm trying to look at that as a very positive thing and say, yeah, let's continue to do it. Because the problem with the West, and I don't say this in the book, here's the thing. The West tries to build stability. And when they try to build stability, they build it out of a homogeneous materials. In other words, let's get everything stable, let's get everything the same, let's make sure that it doesn't change. And this goes from building structures to constitutions to doctrine, denominational loyalty, church covenants, all of these things that we try to say, like, if we're going to be who we are, this is who we are, and it never changes. Well, that is exactly fighting against the laws of nature the laws that the Creator has set in place. The number one rule of nature is to adapt. And so nature's adaptation is what the West calls chaos. But in reality, what's causing chaos in the universe is the Western model of trying to be stable without diversity, without change, you know, with this idea that this is our once and for all identity and this is only who we are. And so while their reality says we're stable, what they really do is creating chaos. And I, you know, I hope that makes sense to you. But that's, I'm like, economy is built on that, right? Let's keep the economy stable. You know, our school systems are built that way. We're really hard to change and change curriculums and all this kind of thing. You know, what are people crying for right now all throughout the country at these school board meetings? We want to go back to the kinds of education that we had. (laughs) We don't want critical race theory. We don't want, you know, these kinds of books that talk about gender stuff. Yeah, so the West has these sort of what they feel is immutable ideas that, drag them down into the abyss. And so I think young people especially, and there's other groups, right? But young people especially are like, it's not going to work for us anymore. I wonder if you could maybe trace that problem, as you call it, to what we're experiencing just in terms of the division and polarization that we're experiencing in this country and actually many places in the world where there is a sort of dominating identity that's being prescribed and it's at war with anything different from it, right? I mean, do you think that that contributes to this sort of black and white 
state that we've slipped into? It does in a lot of ways. Even the way that our language has developed is sort of like binary. Mm-hmm. But that binary thought, like it's either this way or that way, one of us has to win, one of us has to lose, you know, the zero-sum game, that comes right out of this Platonic dualism. That binary thinking is sort of like, you know, we've got it all throughout our theologies, you know, you're saved or you're lost, it's heaven or it's hell, are you an introvert or are you an extrovert? You know, it's like, life's not that way. I mean, None of us are just one thing, right? And race, you know, I love the globalization and the constant bringing up of our different ethnicities and all these kinds of things. None of us are sort of this like stationary thing. We all have to learn that, you know, each generation of my kids, as they marry into different people, they change. And so that's a richness. That is the gift of God, if you will, to have diversity, to have difference of thought, to have alternative ways and not the binary ways. Some people call it hybridity, right? So it's like we can understand the forces at play and we can all sort of see them through our own lenses, but not have to have them as exclusively through our own lenses, right? And I think it's a different way of thinking than what most people were trained in in America. Yeah, I wonder how that plays out then in theology. You know, your title uses two terms, indigenous theology and the Western worldview. Is this valuation of diversity and new perspective part of the indigenous perspective? Well, yeah, again, I don't know if it's new, but the indigenous thought, at least as I've been taught and as I understand it, you know, and I'm just one person who's speaking this and people can disagree with me, that's fine. But we have always, even in our ceremonies, had room for understanding that there are other peoples and that they contribute to life in different ways and that the O's are all acceptable. And I think one of the ways that you can sort of like map it and look at it from history is that even though we had war and our kinds of wars were different than European wars, they generally weren't trying to take over land once in a while that happened, but or they weren't trying to like convert everybody to a different way of being. There's a high tolerance, but there was never, you know, in all my studies and all my years I've been doing a religious war in America before 1492. So there's this high degree of tolerance, right? It's like, you know, you believe your belief, you practice your ways, we'll practice ours. You know, ours are not better. Ours are just different. And so I think built into uh, a lot of our understandings in our tribal peoples in America was diversity. There are plenty of listeners, I'm sure, who hear that word theology in the title of the book and maybe assume that it's not a book that they would enjoy reading, much less understand. And we know why. I mean, a lot of theological books are really dense and complicated and maybe even too abstracted from real life concerns, or maybe they're just plain boring. (laughs) That's not your book. (laughs) And so your style really is conversational, approachable. You constantly connect points that you make to everyday concerns and experiences. But what I like best about your writing is that you really rely on story. You make the point in the book, in fact, that storying is a more indigenous way of exploring and even teaching theology. 
And I mean that not just in using stories to illustrate a point, but the story is primary. The story is the thing that speaks and changes and transforms. I'm wondering, what's the story of how you became what you call a narrative theologian? How did you get to this place where story becomes such an important part of your style? Am I a narrative theologian? Is that what I am? I'm not you sure. used it. Use that term. <laughs> I wrote it down. Okay. I'll take it. All right. I think it's the narrative. And actually what happened was the, the publisher contacted me after I wrote it and said, you need to say something about why you're telling so many stories. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> and that's where that idea came from. Got it. Um, so, well, first of all, we're talking about theology, right? In, in largely Christian theology in this. And the Bible is 90% story. Hmm. And that's just fact. And if you don't understand story, like why those people were writing this in this form, why they were telling these stories, and you have a different way of understanding that, which the West does. People who are more indigenous or non-Western tend to rely on stories as not only important lessons to be learned, but a way of passing down traditions, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you don't get that, and the West doesn't get that because, you know, the first thing in the Western model, and this comes from, you know, sort of Enlightenment-bound worldview, is like, well, did this happen? Is this fact? Is it real? And none of that is why people wrote these stories. They didn't write so that you would check out all the facts. They didn't write so that you would, you know, figure out, well, is it 5,000 years since Adam? Or None of that was what was important. What was important is that the truth of the story is told. And so you ask yourself, well, what is true in that story? And what is true for me? And that story. And so the storytelling, if you will, is just a continuation of that mode of scripture. It's hard for us to see now because we've got it all broken down into chapters and numbered verses. And then we've been taught, like, don't take things out of context. You have to have these verses together. But these stories, it's, you know, it's the story. And I, I had a friend, I met a friend one time, uh, elder. And he was a missionary in the Philippines and among the Ikalahan people. And the whole village follows Jesus, right? And I asked him, you know, because his granddaughter, who I call my niece now, wanted to introduce us. And we had lunch together, and she thought we had a lot in common. And so I asked him, I said, like, what did you do? You know, like, how did that work? And he goes, it was pretty simple. He says, I simply told the stories, and then they theologized to them. Hmm. He said, I never told them what my theology was or how they should think. I just told the stories. And I think that's pretty powerful. You know, mm -hmm. like if we would hear the stories and hear them as story, we might be thinking a lot differently than we do now. I remember having a conversation with Corey Greaves, who is doing work in the Yakima mm -hmm. Nation. And I know Corey. Sure. And he told me this story. I mean, he was kind of making the point you're making. And he said, if missionaries had just given them the seed of the gospel stories and then let them hear the stories and let it grow up in the soil of place, people would have received it much more openly and owned it as their own. But as you say, you know, what they brought was essentially a potted plant. Well, listeners to this podcast have particular interests having to do with people's relationship to creation and with loving and advocating for the earth. So, I want to ask you, what are the hallmarks of an indigenous theology of earth care? Yeah. So, and I think 
maybe it's the other book that I kind of explained at the beginning that, you know, when you start theologizing the newest book, Mission in the Cultural Other, when you start theologizing as a Native person, you have your feet in two worlds. And as someone said, it's very easy to slip into the Western world because they have dominated this idea of theology and what's defined as theology. And I try to avoid those kinds of classifications if I can. And so it's more or less after I think and I write, then I classify stuff, right? Mm -hmm. My favorite thing is when people classify for me, you know, and say, oh, this is what you did. And I'm like, oh, okay. (laughs) Most of our tribal stories about early beginnings are all about animals who get together and talk and do stuff, right? And then when human beings come in, they kind of oftentimes mess things up. But it's interesting that this, and what I call Rather, we talk about the earth, but I talk really more about the whole community of creation, which means everything from the bees and the other bugs to the fleas and to the birds and to, you know, the trees and the flowers and, you know, the microorganisms. We're all a part of this community of creation together. And so when we start helping one aspect, we're actually helping everything because we're trying to bring the world back into harmony which I think is our job as human beings, is to take care of the earth, to take care of the community of creation. That's our fundamental role as human beings. And we're obviously not doing too good a job at that right now. And so we need to get back to being more human. You said our main job is to take care of creation. I think a lot of Western-oriented folks would say the same thing, but I think you mean something different. I think when you talk about taking care of It has more to do with balance than it has to do with ruling over or authority even. Yeah. And, you know, that early Genesis 2.15 passage where this dominion is taken from. Well, even if you just were reading that in like context, you would go like, how in the world did they get that out of that? Because it's talking about nurturing and caring for everything. Human beings in the story, you know, are made last, not because they're the crown of creation, but that they are the ones equipped to keep things in harmony and in balance. And so that is our primary job. And then the idea is now go out and do it, right? That was the command. And so when we're doing that, when we're taking care of the community of creation, and, you know, of course, we're all about the land and loving the land and being in relationship with the land, which I think is what you're getting at is like, all of these things are my relatives, And we have to begin to see that there are relatives in order to treat them properly the way that we should. But when I go out and do this, I'm fulfilling my role as a human being. And it might be that I do it with missing and murdered indigenous women, you know, and I'm working on that. I'm working on bringing harmony to the community of creation. It might be that I'm working on police brutality. You know, it might be that I'm working directly on the waters, you know, the aquifers and the lack of water and whatever it is, it is all working on the same problem, which is our role to bring harmony, equity, equality, whatever terms you want to throw at out there into a balance, into a a way of living together in harmony. That's our job. When you contrast that idea of harmony with maybe a more typically Western framework of dominion or even stewardship. I mean, there are serious implications for the mainstream church, both in terms of history, but also for the state of the planet today. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. 
Yeah, and, and this has to be <laughs> the structural adaptability or this uh, homeostasis that occurs. You know, the church has built according to this Western model. And, you know, no wonder every few generations everybody starts leaving, you know, <laughs> because life is not that way. And this was never the intention of Jesus. Jesus' idea was not to build some religion and some structure that, you know, had these rules. Let's love, let's love our creator. And how do we do that? We love each other. How did he live his life? Yeah, he lived it with the marginal about justice and equity and equality and anti-patriarchy and all those kinds of things. But he also lived his life in nature. He lived and talked, yeah, about, like we said, the flowers and the birds and the trees and all those things. He went on his vision quest for 40 days out in nature and came back in the power of the Spirit. And so we have to look at his whole life, not just like one part of it, like some groups like to look at mostly just the cross or others want to just like look at this resurrection idea. But we have to look at this whole life and understand that there was something being taught here about his whole life that's meaningful to us. Yeah, it seems to me that what you're talking about really is a different way of perceiving, a different way of reading Scripture. Because when we read with a certain lens, we miss some things. We just inevitably are kind of imposing an agenda almost unconsciously on how we read. So when you say that, you know, Jesus was always in nature, that might actually be a surprise to some people. They've just not read that. And yet, if they were to go back and read it, they would see that. So I'm thinking that part of the case you're making in your book is that we need to read with different lenses, right? Not a right versus wrong lens, but different lenses, right? Lenses that we have missed out on because we have ignored them. I would say that how the Western worldview has developed is a very harmful lens mm -hmm. to read Scripture through. It's very helpful to understand the social background and, you know, the historical background and all the different kinds of writings that were taking place at the time and where this measures up and all our different hermeneutical and kinds of tools that we have. All that adds to it, yeah. But fundamentally, if you're looking through a Western worldview— you're looking through a lens that's competitive, that's individualistic, that's greedy, you know, it's capitalistic. It's got all these markings that these people, most of those who wrote, didn't have and didn't relate to and didn't understand. But an indigenous worldview looks at it more like these writers might have looked at it. And so I'm not saying that that's the only perspective to see things through. We need everything. We need liberation theology. We need, sure. you know, womanist and ecofeminism. And we need all these things to look at them and say, like, let's understand this better. But none of us have the answer, right? Sure. Yeah. And the problem is, is that when we look at them through our lens and we go, oh, that's the only lens, mm -hmm. right? So that exclusivity of the Western culture. And so while I would agree that everybody has something to contribute, I would say, now let's listen to what everybody else has to say. So here's the problem that raises, that you raise, in fact, that one of the things you say in your book a couple of times is that the people in power get to define history and by implication theology as well. You know, so if that lens is the prescribed lens, and in fact, the only lens that a lot of people learn, uh, what's to be done? I mean, how does one resist that sort of domination, that sort of totalizing, really, of the lens that we use? 
Yeah. So here's something maybe people can relate to. A lot of people are married. And those who have happy marriages, probably most of those are the ones who have like at the time of their marriage or their wedding, and they promise to, you know, to be there for each other and to give themselves and to, and really to serve one another. Right. And it's freeing to let yourself be that human with another human being where we don't have this like power dynamic going on. Like I'm over you or you're over me and who can get the most out of each other, but you're sharing a life. Right. And I think that we need to apply that sort of understanding what that means in all of our life. And if that means like, Oh, as a white theologian, I've taken most of the air in the room. Then I need to free myself by giving up some of that power, right? And saying, let me make some room for you. Why do you think it is that people would not seek to listen to an indigenous perspective? Well, lots of reasons. <laughs> I mean, first of all, a lot of people don't even know that Native people are still here. True. And then half of what's, not half, 90% probably of what's been seen and written about are based on these mythologies that had to be created in order to make mm -hmm. us an enemy. And so there's just a lot of stories out there that aren't true and that perpetuate a myth of keeping white folks over Native Americans. And so with that kind of an atmosphere, you know, you could expect people not to want to listen. The thing is, is though, is that more Native people get educated and more get spots on television and different things like this. And, and there's a little more freedom now to have Native actors and Native screenwriters or script in the uh, you know, those kinds of things. We've got some producers and directors and we got some native people writing books now. So, you know, as uh, you know, one time this is the position women were in in America. Right. And this is the position that black folks were in in America and et cetera. And so as these minority voices are amplified, they have a lot to say and people begin to have their paradigms challenged and their mythologies challenged. And so, you know, just keep listening. Hopefully, if they don't listen to me, they'll listen to somebody after me or one of my colleagues or something like that. But there's a lot of people who have a lot to say. Humans, by nature, maybe, are maybe conservative in wanting to hold on to what they believe. So I think that maybe listening, paying attention to these other perspectives that might, in fact, heal us, it does take courage. You know, it's not just a matter of choice. It's a matter of finding that place to confront our fear and open ourselves up to the new. Yeah, so that fear's real, but I want to talk about a different side of that now. Let's think about this fear and where it comes from. So you got this quote-unquote homeostatic group who is afraid of the others, but I guarantee you, it's like I, I used to have, uh, I'm going to interrupt my own story here. I had students all the time who said, yeah, but my church, we're all white, you know? And I'd say, are you all male? No. Are you all female? No. Are you all the same age? No. Are they all from different, you know, economic backgrounds? Yes. And I'm like, you know what the real fear is, is exploring your own diversity that's there. There's no such thing as homogeneity. There's the illusion of homogeneity, but we're all different. And if you press each other, and so... 
What I think, and, and again, I could be wrong, this is my own theory, but what I think is going on is the real fear is getting past superficiality. And so I tell them, before you bring, because they want to you know, try and bring people of different ethnic groups and races and stuff, then you start working on the diversity in your own and have them accepting each other where they're at. And then they've got practice now so that they can move on to something that's more different for them. So it's that superficiality that is part of American culture that we don't want to get beyond. You know, I listened to you describing this dynamic, and it actually makes me think back to some of the stories that you tell in this book. I think it's noteworthy that in so many of the stories, it's this diversity of animals who are conferring and deciding what to do next. And you tell a creation story at some point, you know, where the bear is the first one to try to solve the problem. What I took away from that story is like, yeah, I think at the heart of the story is this value of difference. Everyone brings something different and some skills, some capacities are going to be more appropriate to a given challenge than others. So maybe there is something essentially indigenous about that valuation of diversity as a necessary thing. Yeah, absolutely. My first book was called Living in Color, Embracing God's Passion for Ethnic Diversity. The first rendition was just called Diversity. And then when Baker put it out of print, then InterVarsity picked it up and they said they added the word ethnic diversity because they wanted to explore with their students and things. And so, yeah, I think, you know, God is passionate about diversity. God, God's self is diverse. I think everything in the universe has this mark of both unity and diversity and relationship to one another. There's nothing singular in the whole of creation, nothing. Even when you get down to subatomic levels and you break an atom apart, the quarks that are there, they group together at different times, but there's never one alone, which is really interesting. Mm-hmm. And this is why I, I'm actually a Trinitarian, not because I believe that some council back in the old ages said this is who God is, but because I just simply look at nature and say that there's nothing singular that could have created this. It's the fingerprint of God is the DNA is unity and diversity. We've been in conversation with Randy Woodley of the Eloe Indigenous Center for Earth Justice. If you want to learn more about his work and writings, you'll find helpful links on the podcast webpage. There you'll also find information about supporting Eloe's new building initiative, the construction of the Agricultural and Learning Center. As winter is a season of quiet, of reflection, and of rest, Earthkeepers podcast will be going quiet for a few weeks. We'll be back again to start Season 4 in the first week of the new year, when James and I will be doing a special Q&A session. So if you have a comment on any of the episodes from the past year, or have any question you want to ask, use the voice message function on the podcast webpage, or send us an email at earthkeepers at circlewood.online. I'm Forrest Inslee, your podcast host. Our executive producer is James Amadon. Our producer is Dave Wolfers. Forrest Reed is the creator of our original music, and Timothy Connor is our podcast editor. Our research assistant is Alex Megerly, and Jessalyn Gentry is our social media director. Thank you, friends, for listening, and please join us for our next conversation on the Earthkeepers podcast. <laughs>